0: asia tech podcast with graham brown and michael Waits. Waits. hi this is michael waits from asia tech podcast stories i'm here with Songwon park the founder and ceo of favorite medium how are you doing today
1: i'm doing great thanks for having me
0: yeah so look here's what i think right so you're a math and computer science guy by training right which already impresses me to be fair
1: uh, that is my background although, I know, yeah
0: but that's the thing, right? so I look around, I do some research and I see you're a math and computer science guy and the expectation is for a person to be like a certain way if that's the case and then you meet people, this is the great thing about like having embedded biases and then having them just blown up all at once I think you learn as you kind of go through life that what you think is true and all of your sort of preconceived notions about people are generally wrong
1: yeah, and I think like, those two—I um, guess like pursuits, academic pursuits or professions—are they're so like so loaded. I think there there are a ton of preconceptions about those and stereotypes about uh, math and CS. But I also feel like it's one of the those areas, or the both of those areas are really changing quickly too. Yeah, so do, you, it's, it's do you want to tell so, influx?
0: Yeah, so why do you think they're so loaded? I have my own ideas, but I'm curious about yours.
1: Well. I guess at the time, like, you know, I would have been, I guess it, it, when I was in, in university uh, years ago, this major, which was was, was mathematics, um, probably only had one female uh, in, in my cohort, right? So that's something like, you know, 5% or something like that of all right. of, the, of the students. So it's, it's really not, not a huge department to begin with, um, but... You know, sort of fast forward to graduate school uh, computer science was you know definitely better but you know, probably also highly skewed maybe sort of like 60 70 percent male, male. Um, but uh, you know I feel in recent years that things have, have really started to even out and, and um, also just general generally speaking more interest in both of those fields as well Which is a good thing. No, it's
0: it's it's a great thing. And I mean, look, we know how much it's been in the news recently. But the bottom line is that the more women and the more sort of diversity that goes into math and computer science, the more it's going to filter into startups and technology companies. And just the more it's going to filter into venture capital and just sort of the rest of the world into in which we sort of inhabit. Right. Are you are you from Ohio originally?
1: No, I'm not. Uh, I just actually was, was in Ohio for four years during, during university. So I can't claim to be, to be native to the area or even to know a ton about it. But, um, it was, you know, definitely an interesting, you know, kind of time in my life to be in a, in a kind of rural environment, uh, in a very tiny town, um, and and a part of the U.S. that uh, doesn't doesn't get a whole lot of attention internationally.
0: Yeah, so Oberlin is a college that probably most people have not heard of. But if you did any research on me, you'll see that I also went. I went to a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, right, called Connecticut College, so similar to Amherst and Bowdoin and places like that. Right. So, yep. uh-huh. you know, Oberlin, Vassar. Oh, I know the. I know all these places. Do you, or so. Where Where were you born?
1: Um, I was actually born in New York State, like oh, upstate, yeah. upstate in, uh, kind of close to. Uh, uh, actually close to the canadian border wow okay yeah
0: so what was it like
1: being at school in Oberlin? um well you don't have a lot to do socially <laughs> <laughs> uh you know not a ton of uh culture in that area um for those of you who don't know it's 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 in an area kind of somewhere between toledo and cleveland's uh and just in a part of the midwest which doesn't have a lot to offer culturally um but, uh, you know, I, I have good memories of, of being there. You know, there's, you kind of have to sort of create your own things to do when you're in a, in, a, in a small town, a small dry town where they don't even really sell proper beer. Really? Yeah.
0: So yeah. Let's, talk, let's talk again about preconceived notions for a second. I'll expose myself. So my brother, who's a neurosurgeon in Connecticut, married a woman whose family is from um, Seoul. So both of her parents went to Seoul National. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up doing their residency at Emory University in Atlanta. And I remember this is almost 20 years ago. And I remember saying to you know my uh-huh. brother's wife or his girlfriend at the time before they got married. I remember saying, there just simply cannot be a lot of sort of ethnic Koreans in Atlanta. And she said to me, you're completely wrong. You know, so her experience there was just fascinating to me because there seemed to be a whole community down there which really supported her, which I thought was great. I'm wondering, like... So you were born in New York, right? American citizen through and through. I'm just wondering, you know, with all the stuff that's going on in the world today, what it was like to be in a small town in Ohio.
1: Well, you know, this was again decades ago at this point. Not really, <laughs> um, you're
0: not that old, right? Yeah,
1: I'm pretty darn old, but um, I, I'd say that I'm going to guess that it's actually not too different now. Probably um, just just knowing what what that part of the country looks like, and I don't think it's like changed a ton. <laughs> Um, you know, it's part of, of what Americans call the rust belt. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's also just sort of such an isolated area that I don't, I don't think you're necessarily exposed to some of the nastiness that can come from living in a, in a big city, you know, like I wouldn't really lump Atlanta in there, but you know, like, a um, a place like Los Angeles and sure. that, you know, in that time would have been a, probably a more kind of heated environment politically. Maybe. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that things have improved a lot since then, um, in terms of race relations in the U.S. But that part of the U.S. was is, is, is actually pretty uh, idyllic.
0: Yeah, and and to be fair, right? I mean, I went to, like I said, a small liberal arts college as well. And while it wasn't that diverse, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, particularly in Connecticut, it also wasn't it wasn't an adverse environment at any level either, right? I mean, being a university and a liberal arts you know a liberal arts college, it was pretty accepting of me. I mean. As well. And I was definitely in a deep minority there, too. So i was just curious what that's like.
1: Yeah. But actually, you have been kind of curious. I'd like to go back and visit sometime. It's been years.
0: Yeah. So for me, too, I mean, I grad, I'm, I'm probably older than you are, but I graduated in 1987 and I haven't even been in the United States since 2010. And I've lived outside the United States since 1990. So for me... Mm-hmm. You know, and and like I said, I don't get back that often. I'd love to go back and walk around my college. I feel like it would kind of feel like going back to kindergarten where everything just seems really small.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I totally would. Exactly what you mean. Um, It's funny because I've I've actually been living outside the U.S. for a long time, um, coming up on 10 years now, but I do go back quite a bit on business. So it's it's not like I've ever sort of vaguely aware of what's going on, but, um, you know, going over. Purely as, uh, to get in and out to do my thing and, and meet with clients and, and partners and, and our staff there.
0: So, do you want to tell me about you live in Tokyo? Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm currently um, based in Tokyo but splitting time between Singapore and, and Japan.
0: So, where in Tokyo exactly do you live, just for me?
1: So, um, our office and my apartment are both in uh, Minato Ku, right. which is a very central kind of, uh, yeah, uh, you know, central Tokyo.
0: Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, you may not know this, but I actually bought some land and built a house in Minami Aoyama. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so very, yeah, very familiar with where Minatoku is, and like if you know where Daimaru Peacock is on um, Aoyama Dori, I lived over there near the Avex building. So i was just curious, like where you are, just so I had some context.
1: Yeah, that's actually not far at all from from where our, our office is. In fact, the closest stop would be uh, Aoyama Ichome. Got it. So okay, it's so... kind of in that in that toward that direction. Got it.
0: So what what brought you to Japan?
1: So um I've been in, in Tokyo for a little bit over 2 years now. Um it's the most recent office that we've established and it's really kind of been to you know to spend time there to get to understand the market and um you know we have a small team a very small team there so it's kind of a, a I'd say a, a we have a, a nascent presence and you know our, the hope is over time that it'll it'll start to uh um become um you know it's important to the businesses as, as like uh, Singapore, uh, which, which is where we've been, we've been based for some time, as well as uh, the, our office in the Bay Area.
0: Right. So you start, but you started the company in San Francisco?
1: Well, on, on paper, yeah. But I, I, I'd i say our first physical real office uh, was in Singapore. And that was established uh, around 2007, 2007, 2008, something like that.
0: So can you just go back and retrace the founding of this company to me and then kind of just go over the progression of it, right? I mean, it seems to me like if you're San Francisco, Singapore, Tokyo, where else are their offices and how, how has that business developed over time?
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, so what led me to down the path to create FM, uh, favorite medium was, was really, I'd, I'd spent a good chunk of my career, uh, working as an engineer and an architect and, and also in sales, uh, at startups in Silicon Valley. So, I actually spent most of my working career in the Bay Area in, in, in California. Um, and after working in, at a succession of startups, I think it was like five or six, something like that, and seeing some, um, working on some really great teams, you know, want, witnessing horrible failure and some kind of modest success, hmm. um, I just sort of realized that uh, I'd gotten tired of just being on this treadmill of, of going from startup to startup. and. Right. Um, I wanted something that I had a bit more control over, but I also knew that I didn't want to go down the roots of, um, you know, having to uh, start something from scratch and drum up, uh, you know, in- investors and capital, and you know, in a sense, almost like have a board of directors and take. It's almost like having another job, right? Right. Um, but I wanted to, to bootstrap something and do, you know, do it myself. So, um, or along with my partner. So I had a partner at the time, a guy named Tony. So the two of us really kind of founded the company and just went out and, and all sold and tried to, to, to find clients and, and started off doing services. So that's kind of led us down the path of, to becoming a, a consulting company, which is what Favorite Medium is today.
0: But what does that mean when you say services, right? Because if I look at the stuff that you've built, I mean, I saw the Trello stuff that you built, which was really cool, the… Um, yeah the sort of banking and fintech website stuff that you build to it, like the agricultural bank stuff, right? It all seems really interesting to me, but how do you go out and get those clients, right? That cannot be easy.
1: Yeah. So, okay. Maybe services is, is not the right word for it, but it's, uh, you know, I think what we do is we just kind of partner with companies to, um, you know, take their ideas or take their existing products and then, you know, refine them or, uh, take an idea and actually help, help go through a design process and get it, um, you know, go through the product engineering and, and get it, you know, into production or or into a prototype or pilot. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of like product partnership uh, consulting. Um, but in terms of like finding people to to work with, um, you know, a lot of it comes from referral. It comes from word of mouth. Um, you know, there are those occasional people who kind of just find you online and, and approach you via the website or or through Twitter or something. Um, but more often than not, it's, it's existing relationships and then, um, referrals. And then, you know, when we have a good partnership with, uh, with somebody at a company and they, they move on to a different organization, um, sometimes they'll, um, they'll bring us business that way.
0: I really want to understand, you know, you, you mentioned in some of the documentation that you have on your website about porting the Trello stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Porting is a word that I really don't like at all. Yeah, And I'm curious, like, what your view is on this. I'd really like to know how that process works, right? Because I think most people think, you know, you take it from iOS, you're writing an Objective-C, and then you just kind of take it, take the screenshots exactly as they are and just, like, rewrite portions of it because you're porting it over to Android or, you know, whatever it is. I don't think Mm -hmm. it works like that at all, but I don't think most people understand
1: that, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, I think there was a time uh, maybe a few years ago when, you know, some of these mobile SDKs were actually pretty primitive. I'm thinking of, of, you know, like sort of iOS SDK 2.0 or something like that, and right. the first versions of Android, where you could almost like sort of just make stuff look the same. Um, and that is sort of what I think of as a port. Um, but over time, you know, we've seen some pretty rapid progress and, and you know, the, the maturity of mobile development today is, is um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely far ahead of where it was even even like two or three years ago. So I think designers and product people actually do have to really think carefully about you know what the experience is on one mobile platform, be it iOS or Android or wherever it is, um, and, and how, you, how you design for that and, and how that affects the way the product is in, in the hands of the user. So it's, it's, it's not such a straightforward thing anymore.
0: No, I mean I think you make a really good point. Right, if you go back to IS, iOS, sorry, two and you and you fast forward to today, where you know iOS eleven is coming out soon, like the the level of triviality and the differences in those SDKs is just completely different,
1: right? Yeah, it is. Um, and the the footprint of these things is expanding, you know, pretty quickly. You've got new new hardware uh, to, that you can leverage, new sensors. You know, in iOS eleven, you've got NFC that's opened up. Which has been around in Android for quite some time, but you know, um, you know that's that's exciting. It's, it's 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 something you can work with. There's you know there's AR cores, AR kits for for uh, iOS, uh, and and these things are opening up lots of you know new things to developers. But it's almost like it takes a different skill set to to even um, to, to fully leverage it, right?
0: Yeah. So I'm really curious about this. Right. So you now have offices in multiple countries. <clears throat> Excuse me, right, but you just brought up something that's really interesting to me, right? Augmented reality. A lot of people talk about virtual reality, you know, putting on these big glasses or even mixed reality, which is also interesting. But this whole concept of augmented reality, if you watched kind of last night's presentation as well, where you're using a phone as a gaming device and you're sort of inserting yourself into the game, but I mean, there's many ways to do augmented reality. Is this something that you guys are going to branch into as well? And how do you think that that works? And is it different in different yeah. locations? Like, do people perceive this differently in Tokyo than they do in San Francisco and in Singapore?
1: Um, I, I still think it's like really early days for AR. Um, although it's been around for some time, I think like kind of public recognition of what AR can do is it's it's going to be driven by these these bigger companies like Apple and Google. You know, Microsoft has been doing it for some time, but right. there's not. You know, I think the HoloLens like, the hardware has just not been accessible um, to, to most people both at the price kind of price point and level and, and also kind of just lack of distribution. Um, but yeah, I, I, I haven't, I don't think it's been around a long enough for there to be kind of strong regional uh, differences and perceptions of what it can do. Um, you know, obviously like games kind of uh, introduce people to, to the technologies, um, you know, like Pokemon go and stuff like that. Um, but I think the floodgates are about to open with this, this, Gen- this current generation of hardware, or I would say, like the bleeding edge of the current generation, um, you know, the capabilities of these devices uh, is is going to, to you know kind of put a higher quality of of AR experience in, in everyone's hands. Um, and we are, to, to answer your, your earlier question, you know, so we, it's definitely something we're already developing for. So we've we've been uh, using the beta version of uh, AR Kit Apple's AR Kits uh, for a few months now. And, and working with that and you know it's it's, it's really exciting to, to touch and feel this technology
0: but where do you think where do you think this goes right so if you're not a game developer right where do you see this stuff getting used
1: um i think there's lots of applications for for ar um you know industrial applications are probably going to be one of the things that's will um that we see demand coming from uh, coming up for like very immediately and this is stuff like um you know um when you're doing something like let's say f- fixing uh, for now humans still fix cars let's so <laughs> let's just kind of assume that humans are going to keep doing that for the next few years um you know you're 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 trying to uh let, let's say you're looking at the engine you're trying to replace you know an air filter or something like that um, if, if people even do that anymore but like a heads-up display for instance you know so as you're looking at your model car you can get all the the latest data with, with, you know, it would be able to correctly identify what model car you're looking at and, and kind of guide you through the process um, without being a trained mechanic, for instance. So like things like that, Um, I think there's already been lots of applications for other uh, industrial applications for things like guided, you know, assisted, uh, assisted surgery for one, you know, things like that.
0: Right. I mean, I think about what my brother does, right? Like I said, he's a neurosurgeon, right? So you're opening up somebody's brain or you're going into their spine and, you know, again, a very non-trivial incisions and going inside mm-hmm. the human body. I just wonder what that's going to be like with the benefit of augmented reality. You know, to be able to see what you're going to do before you before you're doing it, or even as you're doing it, be able to have access to yeah. sort of so much information.
1: Yeah, and I think this is where design thought has to come into play too, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in a situation like that, you know, you really have to think about not overwhelming the user with too much information, so that they're not paralyzed with uh, you know processing too much kind of input. Uh, while also, you know, understanding the context well enough to offer the most helpful advice, right? So I think this is where you have to start to think about, like, um, what are you looking at? What is the, How quickly can we establish the context? And uh, let's let's kind of offer up the most useful information, and that's going to come through having access to, you know, a, a body of data, right, to a, a large body of helpful information, and then being able to quickly filter it. Um, and in some cases, you're going to have to leverage stuff like AI to, to make it, um, to make those recommendations and and um, uh, like I said, like recognizing what 's happening
0: yeah so here's here's the big question for me right I, mean, I would touch on two subjects that are really close, right this concept of augmented reality, but also you know you mentioned this a little bit too, you know automobiles and there's a whole bunch of development taking place right now in the autonomous vehicle space right and i don 't like to think about cars per se because in my mind, and I talk about this a lot actually an autonomous vehicle doesn't necessarily need to look like a car today. But what's going to mm-hmm. happen inside of that car is probably something, or inside that vehicle is probably something where you and your teams are going to be involved. And I've won- I wonder if you sort of spend any time internally talking about how to use, you know, if you're sitting in an autonomous vehicle, it's driving itself, it's level five, right? So it's really driving itself on its own. You're sitting mm-hmm. in traffic or you're on the highway. How do you envision the sort of, Glass surfaces, or any of the surfaces in the car, in the context of what you already do, what you're developing, what you present to your clients for the possibility of using those spaces as development spaces, and then also mm-hmm. you know how you incorporate augmented reality into those spaces to make that um, experience really powerful mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think in a perfect world, then uh, you know we're we're somewhat in control of that experience, you know, and the passenger you know, is able to to utilize that space the way they want to. Of course, the nightmare uh, kind of maybe even the more realistic scenario is it's going to be plastered with the advertising. But let's hope that doesn't happen.
0: I think – I think. so I'm going to interrupt you for a second only because I think people talk a lot about the dystopian-style future, right, where all glass surfaces end up – I'm sorry, surfaces end up being places for advertisement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm just. I'm just not that um, bearish on that, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just feel like there's so much opportunity to make all those spaces and all those surfaces a place where you can just be way more productive. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I think that that's going to happen because I think what I think what's happening already is that the ad space business is slowly but surely becoming so annoying. You know, in the sense that when you were a kid and when I was a kid, for sure, you know, we really had ads in. In two major spaces that we interacted with every day, besides sort of newspapers and billboards, and that was on television, and you couldn't control it, you couldn't record over it, you know, you couldn't get rid of it, and on the radio, where it just felt like natural, right? A DJ would read an advertisement and then go back to playing music, but I think now that it's just ubiquitous, I think there's sort of fatigue around advertising everywhere, and I think people are going to say, you know what, I'm willing to pay a minimal fee to get rid of advertising, and that's why I ask about this sort of development space mm-hmm. is people will be willing to pay to not see ads. They already do it, right? In plenty of these iOS apps, it says, you know, pay me $2 a month or pay me $15 a year and you don't have to see an ad. I'm just wondering what if that's the case, then what do those spaces get used for in your mind? In other words, if someone said to you, it's a free palette for you, what would you design into that just based on your experience already and the thoughts you've already had on this?
1: Well, I think you know, that's actually going to be something that probably will vary, um, and that is this—that's that's something that could uh, actually have um, substantial regional differences because there there could be different expectations for people who, you know, for instance, have never driven before versus sure. you know when you're, you're coming from a car-centric kind of environment, let's say like like the United States or Canada uh, or Australia, right? Um, countries with lots of land. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. Like yeah i i think like ar is probably going to play play some role in that because you know there is there's still that kind of like experience of traveling through through a space and you know um i'm not sure that everyone's going to want to kind of observe that or interact with it you know, there's there's definitely i think we're moving toward a a world where where it's more kind of tune out and and kind of control your own sort of um uh, environments um but uh yeah i think there's there's lots of opportunities and it's it's uh, it'll just it's I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what this first generation of um, um you know kind of display technology uh, it, you know projection inside the car is going to look like
0: yeah and again you know last night Apple had that big event right at the steve Steve Jobs theater, and the only sort of demonstration that they had of a r was the gaming and i just mm-hmm. think it's i just think it's um you know, in Japanese, we'd say motainai, right? It would just be a waste if that was the only way that this technology was going to be used, right? And I can just yeah. see so many more uses for it. And there,
1: there are there are a ton of other uses for it. Right. And, um, yeah, and I think you have to just sort of think about, like, we're, we're just not yet accustomed to interacting with 3D objects kind of in physical space, in like space, in the real right? world, Yeah, right? And that's going to become more natural um, over time. Um, and I'll say this, like some of the stuff that we're doing now, what they are, uh, is really has to do more with, um, industrial applications, meaning like, you know, what is it like to, um, to be in a space with a, let's say like a 3d model of something that you normally don't have access to, right? Let's say it's like a jet engine,
0: right? That's what I think about when I think about this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And like, you know, really understanding how it works, you know, like, um, you know, being able to touch it and interact with it and see it sort of like pull, you know, do an exploded sort of, you know, view of it, that type of thing. That's very exciting to me because it's got obvious applications for education, but also for, um, you know, kind of like for, for businesses as well, you know, like um, uh, and in this particular case, it's, it's like, you know, imagine you've got a a portfolio of stuff that you want to, you know, you show uh, outside of its natural environment. That's really the only way you can do it.
0: Yeah, so what I, I mean, I think about this in, in a whole bunch of different verticals, right? You mentioned architecture earlier when we first started talking. You know, mm-hmm. right now there are sort of 3D models, but I just imagine, even just from a pure real estate perspective, we can talk later about how do you design a house or design spaces, but, you know, right now the real estate business is using sort of video in a really primitive way, right? You sit at home and you kind of walk through or fly through spaces, but if you can <coughs> AR that stuff, your experience or just that whole concept around looking at a place to buy or to rent or to even build is just so much mm-hmm. more powerful, no?
1: Well, yeah, and, I mean, its we're, we're not that far away from actually being able to just spend all your time in that virtual space, and it might right. actually be a lot better than the crappy flat you got in Hong Kong. <laughs> right? Seriously. <laughs>
0: but, but, so, but tell me, so that's a really interesting concept, though. So you mean you can actually have an apartment or a house that is just like bare bones and basic, but you can augment reality it into being a much better space. Is that what you're yeah. suggesting? Or,
1: or exactly, yeah. Or uh, you know, by by giving yourself a portal into some other, you know, give yourself another huge bedroom <laughs> that you can walk into. And it, it, this is more of a mixed reality kind of environment, right? So, you know, mixing the VR and the, and the AR, but you know, using the AR as a as a portal into it. But you know, you can totally imagine that being able to just completely kit out your, your your new virtual kind of room uh, in a way that it's really comfortable and kind of fun to hang out in.
0: But isn't this kind of cool? Like, you've actually just made me think about this. I spent so much time thinking about autonomous vehicles and how that's going to change the way people live and interact with the sort of physical spaces and the surfaces around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine, you know, we, we do this in design today, right? You have a living mm-hmm. room, and in your living room, you have a mirror, and that mirror makes the living room feel twice as big. Yep, yep. Right. And you know, when um <clears throat> when Bill Gates built his house in Seattle twenty five years ago, he put up all these, you know, picture frames and those picture frames and had um, you know, an ever changing piece of artwork in there, right? So it had, you know, Monet and Matisse and all this stuff. Just keep switching, switching, switching. But imagine if that yeah. surface now is just can be like outdoors or like a scene from Paris or just some other thing where you can actually interact and it makes it feel like you're outdoors. Mm-hmm. I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about that, but actually inside your own apartment, you're right. You could live in just a bare bones place. It's just like stealing concrete and just change what it looks like inside all the time.
1: Yeah. And, and I think a funny thing about this and where, when it really hit home for me was it was, I was testing an app that one of our engineers had been working on. Um, and this was a VR app and inside the VR app, there's a, there's kind of like a fake TV and you can actually pull up YouTube contents. And when you're watching that YouTube content there, it's it's kind of like you almost sort of forget that you're not in the real world. It's not very different from just watching the same YouTube video like on your laptop or on your TV or Chromecasting it or whatever, right? Wait, so, so, go,
0: so go through this with me again. I have goggles on, right? And you're building yeah. a virtual world, so it's virtual reality. And inside that virtual reality, there is yeah. a television or some representation of a television. And on that yeah. television, there's YouTube.
1: Right, and it says whatever you want to watch, <laughs> just, just like regular YouTube because it is regular youtube it's just inside the v r world you know but it, so it's almost like you can it. do that and you can do that with a r as well
0: yeah, I mean you can, and that's really like it, you know Microsoft used to used to do those demos with HoloLens, right, where you know you're standing in an office and there's a pencil like floating in the in the air and stuff like that, but this reminds me of, like what you used to do when you were a seven year old kid right and you're you know in the dressing room at uh at Macy's and you kind of put your hand in between two mirrors and it just is like an endless meta experience yeah. of just a hand and a hand and a hand. But if that's the case, right. right? If you're watching YouTube on YouTube using augmented reality, it just seems like a really strange
1: experience. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's not as, it's not as strange as, as, you know, everyone uses that analogy of inception, but it's just actually kind of natural when you, when you actually have the face sucker, you know, on and, and you've got the the content in front of you.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to get too philosophical, right, <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon, but does it seem like we're going to be spending so much more time inside of an augmented reality world that it's going to be difficult to differentiate between what is actually real, whatever that means, and then what's augmented? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm not sure that it, it'll be so much of a problem of you know lack of, of differentiating. But I do sort of have this sort of feeling um, that there could be just a lot more time spent experiencing things in a very inward sort of way, right, in a, in a solitary kind of virtual world. Um, but then again, people have been saying that about gaming for, for forever, right? And
0: um, Yeah, but I think technology is making, and for lack of a better term, I think technology is actually making a leap and catching up to people's vision is. for, right? So if, even if you just look at the processors that <clears throat> that Apple and you know, I was in Shanghai last week with Huawei and talking about the new chips that they're coming out with, and just how powerful they are at rendering video, audio, and um, and just still photos. And what's happening in, those, in that world where the rendering is taking place is, I think most people can't even conceptualize what it's like. And by the time it becomes commonplace, I don't even think it's going to be shocking anymore, but I think the applications of it are going to be um, amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I mean, like, you travel a lot, right? And, I do, yeah, yeah, but just imagine like not needing to travel, but I don't know why I always use the Eiffel Tower as an example, right, but even climbing Mount Everest, I mean, you could probably simulate that entire experience in an augmented reality or virtual reality world and actually never have to do it, and when danger arises, you just kind of turn it off and walk away, but you still be you're still able to get sort of the excitement and that feeling of climbing a mountain which you may not have been able to do otherwise, no
1: yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and you're reminding me that I, w- I would just love to uh, <laughs> to attend a, uh, a a meeting, you know, by like putting on a, a headset or whatever, or even just using a phone rather than hopping on a plane and flying halfway around the world. Um, so I'm, I'm relishing that uh, that day,
0: right? But I do. So we've been working on this forever, right? So when I was at Morgan Stanley in Tokyo, we used to have a video conference once a week with our tech team back in New York, and it, we used to joke, even while it was going on, that it kind of felt like both sides were on the space shuttle. Mm -mm. Do you know what I mean? We're just, the resolution was poor and the latency was bad and the lag, you know, we would talk over each other the entire time. And in most cases, on a weekly basis, we just give up. But now we're at a point where, I mean, think about it. You and I aren't even on a phone call. We're on a Skype call, right? And there's no latency. We're not talking over each other. This is perfect. And we probably could have done video too. Like, I don't know what your internet speeds are like there. But, I mean, in my apartment, it's 50, megabit, 50 megabits up and down, and if I go to a coffee shop here and it's the right coffee shop, it's 300 megabits up and 200 megabits down, So, or vice versa, sorry. So that has caught up in a way or surpassed in a way what we need to do, what we tried to do 20 years ago. And it, it also means, right, that this whole concept, which we haven't talked about at all, this whole concept of telepresence, right? Like, it's going to really feel like you're there.
1: Yeah. That That's what's... Uh... I think it's 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 getting there, and it's what's going to I think change the nature of, of collaboration because right now, like what what we see in the, in the you know like your your weekly call you know and, and with telepresence and stuff, it's you know it's definitely even if the quality is good, like it's still a projection on a two-dimensional surface. Correct. And I, I think like what's what's you know really game-changing about uh, like an AR kind of experience is, is just being you know, being able to kind of see stuff in 3D and and uh, it's just, it, it sort of sucks you in and makes you more present and you just, you, your brain just can't help it. It just, it draws you in. Right, um, I mean,
0: right. I mean, for lack of a better term, right? It's completely immersive.
1: Yeah. I was trying to avoid that word, but yeah, it's yeah, so always,
0: I, do, I don't want to say to the red, I don't like to use bad <laughs> words, but you know, in the same way that I don't like to use like paradigm changing and stuff like that, but in, in, to a certain extent, right? Like, you know, when you jump into a pool of water, you're immersed in that water. And just because other people overuse that word doesn't mean it's not pretty expressive for the concept, yeah. but like you can lose you can lose um, track of this of the fact that you're actually not in a place where it feels like you are and I just I always wonder like what the implications of that are in other words, does it make people want to travel more or travel less right in other words like you said, if I don't need to get on a plane to go have a meeting with you because I feel like you're actually there
1: mm-hmm.
0: what does it do to the travel industry you know do I really care if I ever get to Paris per se right right if I can just feel like I'm there anyway? Yeah. Right. I don't I don't I don't know.
1: I, I sort of feel like it's gonna make people want to travel more. Um but then again it also just make, make make everything seem closer just because it will be all more accessible. Um and you'll just pick the places that you actually really do want to go and you know uh and taste the food in and, and meet people and, and speak in your broken uh whatever language it is. <laughs> I think my English is broken to be fair.
0: <laughs> um, but what do you? But what do you think about this? So you're you're running this company, right? You've got multiple locations. You're flying all over the world and and managing people in different cultures. I presume some of your staff in Japan is also Japanese, right? Is that is that uh, true?
1: Yeah, it's actually we're actually mostly well we're pretty international in that office. Uh, but yeah, we have Japanese staff as well.
0: Right. So, you, so you're doing all that stuff, but do people need to then get retrained as the technology that you're using or the experiences that you're programming towards change? In other words, you know, someone who graduated from university, even with a degree in computer science 10, even 11 years ago, right? How up to speed are they going to be with augmented reality and the concepts around augmented reality? And like, how do you handle that from a management standpoint and, and even from a hiring standpoint?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, I, I think what our our sort of philosophy toward that is is to hire people who are not specialists. Like we tend to, um, you know, both with designers and engineers, you know, we tend to look f- for people who've got a, a real interest in what they're doing so that, you know, when they're throwing a curveball, they don't just give up and say, like, hey, I wasn't trained to do that. But they'll actually right. have some kind of like hunger and interest and, in, 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 you know, kind of uh, taking on this new challenge. Um, but you have to have the right fundamentals to to be able to adapt like that, and it's the sort of thing where like, um, you know, uh, a musician who did, who's really good at piano can probably adapt to playing some other instruments because they've got some understanding of notes and music and and uh, you know intervals and stuff like that. So I, I think um, design and and um, engineering are, are very much like that, and we're seeing it right now with design especially as interfaces move kind of um, I wouldn't say not really moving away from visual interfaces but there's there's a whole type of you know they're, they're entirely new products now which are don't have a visual interface you know like uh, when you're thinking about uh, an AI right like like uh, Google assistant or Cortana or uh, Alexa um, you know these things like you know we started writing applications for these things and you're like well the design is still there you know it's, it's fundamentally it's a user experience kind of challenge but you're not doing a wireframe. You're not thinking about colors. You're thinking more about, um, you know, kind of, uh, the, the flow that a user takes through, um, a conversation, um, that type of thing.
0: Right. So when you're doing, so, yeah. so, sorry, when you're doing this, right. So you're designing something, as you said, without sort of a visual interface, mm-hmm. right. And how, like, how does that change the thought process around, you know, still using computer, computer science and all that stuff Where the people are interacting with something that's just purely software right they're not seeing something they're not touching something so it's not tactile it's not visual but they are (coughs) actually interacting with something Right? Alexa is the perfect example of this right like you know play me a song from um, the B side you know if I don't know some some album right or some single but it's got to it's got to it's got to sort of mimic the real world experience of me just talking to you, right? If I want something from you, if you're sitting across the table from me and I say, Hey, can you just turn the radio up a little bit? Yeah. You know what that means, but how do you program that?
1: Right. And I think that's where visual interfaces are a little bit different from conversational stuff because you can't have, you don't ever want in a conversational interface. You don't want to ever get into like a dead end, you know, which is like where it just stops responding, you know, or you get into a loop where it's just like, it keeps saying, I don't understand you. I can't process what you're saying. Whereas with web, stuff we tend to be more forgiving as users because we'll yeah, everyone's seen like the dreaded like 404 it's like you know page not found <laughs> right and that's you're like okay well I'll just go hit refresh or go back or, or like I think we as humans we've all been conditioned to sort of deal with that and work around it
0: right I'll just click on just something go, just else go back
1: to the, I'll just go back to the home you know right. s- screen or whatever start over like again that kind of thing, right? Where, whereas with a voice interface you don't ever want to get that 404 or it's just like nothing it's just hanging you know so this, this is something where I think we have to, uh, like, designers and engineers have to work together to um, almost think of, uh, of the whole thing as a loop, where it's it's a conversational loop, and it has to kind of go back to something uh, until the user initiates uh, kind of, a, you know, end of session, like a termination, like, goodbye, I'm done, or, or I've just stopped talking to you.
0: Yeah, but this is, you make a really good point, right? So humans, when they interact with each other, have an understanding, right? Like, when you and I are finished with something, if I ask you for a favor, at the end, you don't... The, the phrases that we use or the phraseology that we use can be different, but it's well understood, right? You can say to me, yep, got it, mm-hmm. and then walk away, and that's neither considered rude nor like unfinished business. But how do you do that in a non-visual interface? It's just a really interesting programming conundrum, right? Because how do you teach that to someone? And, and you make a really good point as well, right? If I'm on a website, I click on something that doesn't work, I pause, I look around, and I try to figure out where I'm supposed to click next. Right. But I mean, imagine a situation where you talk to a human and you, you ask them a question and they just like look at you blankly and you have no idea. And then you explain like 15 things and they still don't understand. Yeah. The likelihood that you're going to start all over again and like take a different tact is so that's, low. That's really
1: what it's like. And I, I think that's where like with visual interfaces we get away with more because, right. you know, there, there's stuff that there's other things, visual cues for somebody to do something else, take another path, Right. you know, go hit the back button, you know, do do whatever it is to, to sort of get around the situation. Um, and you know, I, I think some of these these newer interfaces, um, you know, and I would say that even in the in the virtual world, you get the same sort of thing. You know, where there's got you're, you're kind of waiting for input or something's happened, and you're, you're sort of unclear whether you've asked a question or you've you're 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 just you know not interacting. All these things sort of point toward you know a need to understand whether the loop has been closed or not.
0: Yeah. So I wonder, right? So how do you take a service like if this then that? Right. And other things that are similar to that program against them in a way, like you said, where there's no visual interface, right? Because today you program against that stuff, whether it's on iOS or even on the web. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like recording a macro and visual basic was back in Excel in, you know, 1997 or 1998. I can't remember when it was. Yeah. You kind of knew where it was breaking down because it didn't, you know, go to cell C1 when you asked it to. So it was pretty easy to fix. Mm -hmm. But if you were just talking it through something, I just wonder how you debug that stuff and how you fix it. Like you said, you don't want to end up with a dead end because in real life you generally don't end up with it. So people aren't used to that.
1: Yeah. And I think it puts a lot of burden on, you know, a UX designer to, to sort of figure out and really work out the flow to be very tight. Like, you know, or I should say flows plural, um, because you know, uh, this stuff can get complicated very quickly. Um. So it's it's you know covering all your bases and making sh- making sure that you don't end up in some sort of uh, you know there like a um, a loop that can't be exited uh, sort of the infinite loop or or a, uh, um, a situation where there's a, just a dead end.
0: Yeah. So just after all this talking about like building interfaces and programming and some technical stuff, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I want to a lot of people that do sort of sophisticated programming and they build they build businesses for other people particularly in multiple locations which means that it gives them exposure to a whole bunch of different ideas and a whole bunch of different concepts. Does do you and your team ever sit around and conceptualize things that you think that no one's thought of yet and just go out and build them on your own? In other words, would you try, you know, now that you have all this expertise and you've built a bunch of tools and you've built maybe a bunch of modules that you can sort of use for each individual project. You just sit around and think, you know, what we should build this thing ourselves and maybe spin it out as a separate entity. Does that ever happen?
1: Yeah, it does happen. Um, you know, it's happened a couple of times. So what I'll say is this: is is you know we've we've built at this point I think over 90 products for for uh, in partnership with our clients. Wow. You know most most often you know they have you know ownership and it's their business and, and you know we just work with them to get the product to market. Um, and through that experience, we've started to understand what makes a successful team. You know, because I think having a product is different from having a business. Sure. So I think we're good. We're actually pretty good at this point at and we have created a couple of our own products um and uh in both cases they were they were things where we saw oh you know what the market needs this because it doesn't exist today right Mar- uh, you
0: find and, a market gap right and you try to fill it
1: yeah yeah so one of them just you know to give you an example was for uh, a friend of mine who's in the, the fb industry came to me with a, a problem and I, I love hearing about people's business problems because that usually means there's some software involved <laughs> right. uh, and his problem was it's like you know i have like 60 staff and I have these, he, I've got three shifts at my restaurant um, and I'm having a problem like just scheduling, getting the right people to staff each shift uh, because right now like my manager's using a combination of SMS and email and, and you know uh line or cacao talk like chat, right? Just all these different things and you don't have, no one has a clear view on like who's scheduled for what there's no kind of like single way to view that. So we actually developed a product for shift scheduling for, essentially for restaurants and factories. Um, and right now we're actually looking for somebody who could, could take that and turn it into a business. So if there's anyone out there who's listening and wants to be a CEO of this company, wants to take it and run with it, um, you know, that's, that's, I think what we're interested in doing now is partnering with people who, who um, either have the industry expertise or, um, you know, really want to come in and, and kind of find out, find a way to, to develop the product into a like a, a real business.
0: Yeah, so there are people actually, and this is way off topic maybe, but there are people actually that are that are trying to build businesses like that from the ground up, right? There's a guy and a team in San Francisco that's building a business called Scheduleo, right? Same thing. Yeah. It, this is non-trivial, right? How do I get a distributed workforce in multiple locations? f and B's is a great example of this, right? I have five restaurants, and maybe they're close to each other, so some people have to work in one place tonight and yeah. another place tomorrow night. How do I schedule around that? And what if somebody quits or get sick and how do I yeah. sort of you get optimize you specialized
1: them. skill sets too. You've got like the people who can, only the people, there's a few people that can run the cash register and there's only one bartender. You know, no one else knows how to make drinks, like you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and if also, and I hadn't thought about this either, but if you think about like seat optimization for an airline, right, ticket optimization mm-hmm. and price optimization, yep. that's exactly what you're building, but just... For a completely different vertical. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, there's got to yeah. be some... If anybody out there is listening to this and you're really interested <laughs> in running this business, well, this is a potentially large business as well, right?
1: It is, yeah. It's one of those things where it's... it's You know, you're talking about, like, lots of people using it. Um, you know, it probably would need to go through some traditional sales channels. Um, so, anyone, anyway, somebody from that industry that... Uh, or even from the point-of-sale kind of business that would know how to, like, you know, take that and... and uh, take a product which is actually you know pretty much ready for for market. Um, you know, those are the kinds of partnerships we would we would like to explore. And there's a couple of other things. So we we've got you know one, for some reason two of them are in the the F&B industry, <laughs> um, and, and one of them is a, a sort of prop tech kind of thing um, for for on demand um, booking of of spaces and basically utilizing dead space in a in a restaurant. Um, uh, so sort of a form of co-working, I guess, but in a non-traditional space. Um, yeah,
0: so, so yeah. I've, I've thought about this too, actually, right? So there there are a bunch of businesses in Bangkok, right? A bunch of bars that mm-hmm. are open all day, mm-hmm. but no one goes in them until 6 o'clock at night. Yeah. Right? But there's staff there, there's food there. You know, you don't have to start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning, but you could have soda water and Coca-Cola and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think there's an entire business to be built. And again, this is completely off topic, but you brought it up, so...
1: Yeah, I think there's an. That's, a, that's exactly what we're looking at. Where, in fact, that, the the dead space in a bar or even like a like a karaoke place, like that, that's a a really perfect fit for this type of product because they the asset that they have is air conditioning and 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 you know kind of hope, hopefully fast broadband, right, fiber or something. Um, and if it's a a place that's that's you know quiet and accessible and uh, people will pay for that.
0: Well, that's the thing. So I was you know I don't want to admit this on the air but the reality is that i've met a guy here that i advise weekly and i meet him in an like in an irish pub at 11 o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and not to drink but the reality is that they have all-day food there i think there's a whole business to be built around like if you come in at 10 o'clock in the morning you get like a discounted soda water and you can use our broadband and you pay like a hundred baht or three dollars an hour whatever it is yeah, yeah, and then at six exactly. o'clock, too bad for you. It turns into a bar, so you can stay and still drink, or you can leave and go work somewhere else. But that's a co-working space, just automatically because it has yeah. tables, chairs, air conditioning, and broadband.
1: Yeah, and the vision for the product is is it to enable any space to be an ad hoc co-working space, and for for anyone who's controlling the space to be able to to you know uh, basically monetize that. that what's normally just kind of sitting there dead during the day.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what this means really is I should actually talk to you more often because I've had this idea, (laughs) but I don't have the software for it.
1: All right, we should do that next time I'm in Bangkok.
0: So uh, that's the other thing, too. Do you travel to Southeast Asia outside of Singapore at all?
1: I do, yeah. Um, So, you know, we have, in addition to to remote staff that we have in in, uh, places like Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, I do travel in the region quite a bit, so um indonesia is probably the place i go to the most often um it's close by we actually have um you know engagements where we'll do things like user research for products or sometimes it's like concept testing for something some kind of new class of product we've done some stuff like this for for some some big uh uh, phone manufacturers um uh so uh yeah it's it's, it's great to get around the region it's probably the place where i spend the most of my time outside of japan
0: and what and what do you think like how big do you think this business can get? I mean, how, you said you've been at it what since two thousand and seven? Is that yeah? Did i I'd remember say kind of uh, of
1: that? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I'm, I'm, I'd say on paper. I mean, we didn't really book our first revenue until the tail end of two thousand seven. So yeah, about ten years. Um, you know, I think I, I think our goal is not to make it as big as, as it can be. No, um, no, for
0: sure. But, but it just as an opportunity, um, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely you know. There's, there's probably limits to what we can do with it, but I'd rather kind of keep it... At, I wouldn't say the size that we're at. I think we can definitely grow in terms of, of the number of people we have. Um, but I like being able to have uh, a good understanding of what's going on with each team, with each product team within the company. Um, so I think I would be really sad if it was the, the, the sort of business where I just kind of like lost track of what was going on um, and there was just like too much activity or it was too ge- geographically you know, spread out for, for, um, um, for me to really have a handle on
0: it. How many people are there total?
1: So we're at about 40 right now.
0: Okay. That's a lot of people though.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, in our industry it's considered pretty small, but, um, yeah, for sure. But still, but, but, that's but a lot of people compared to, manage. A, compared to a, a software startup. It is kind of a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you- and, 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 different countries and to, and, and stuff too, you know, um,
0: yeah, I was gonna say. To be fair, you like you're not really a startup at any level.
1: No, we're um, not. You've just been
0: at yeah. it for so long. So, I want to ask you this too. Have you heard of a company called BetaWorks?
1: BetaWorks, no, I don't think I have.
0: Yeah, so BetaWorks is a company um, in New in New York, run by a guy named David Borthwick, if I, John Borthwick. Sorry if I remember his name correctly. And you know, they do some interesting stuff too, from a development standpoint. But they also develop their own. I don't want to say ventures, right? Because that sounds. I think it gives it too much weight but they do a similar thing that you, that you, it sounds like you and your teams do. I always wonder, right, when if you're so close to the market gaps, right? And like you said, you know how to build teams, you know how to build the software, you can see products like this product you're talking about to sort of optimize the usage of dead space, right? Which I find I think that could be a gigantic business and and super useful, right? Like I said, I've already I've thought about this for a long a long time. But I wonder if you ever think about because you see all this stuff and you know how hard it is to build them. Do you ever think about investing as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, at this at this point, I, I would I would say that that we're starting to look at that. Um, mm. And I, I'm not able to do that on my own. But uh, we have a new maybe one thing I can mention is is that we actually have a new uh, joint venture with a company called um, with a a woman in in a, in the U.S. who's has a Long track record of starting founding companies and and, and selling them. Um, so we we created a new, a new JV called uh, FM Labs, and I think that's going to be closer to what you're talking about, both both in terms of investment on, on a, a you know kind of capital uh, as well as um, taking investments um, in, in kind of uh, partnership for the product development as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, that's why I asked, right? Because I think it's the natural natural progression of a business like yours, right? You start out. providing services you provide those services really well you build a bunch of modules and sort of things that you can combine in different shapes and sizes yeah you you start to see market gaps you start to fill those market gaps and then and then people come to you and say hey can you do this for us you're like well actually the way the best way to do this is like this and actually we'll seed some money into you and we'll take a little bit of ownership and then we'll help you run that business too because like you said you know teams you know businesses and you know the gaps yeah
1: yeah so um it's early days yet but I'm pretty excited about where that's headed
0: and you think that's going to be global as well
1: so right now the focus is on on the U.S. market That's um, just kind of like where, where my partner is based and what she knows but um, you know I think over time we'll start to see it even out uh, and I think a lot of the so we're, we're actually working with two companies right now um, both of them are American startups but I, I don't think there's anything inherently kind of North American about them They they both seem like things that could, could develop into legitimate businesses in Asia pack and in other regions too.
0: Yeah. Do you think you have some sort of edge by being out here, whether it's an information arbitrage or just sort of a cost arbitrage by being based in Singapore and in Japan and stuff like that? Like, do you think, do you feel like you have an edge <laughs> with that type of stuff?
1: I think we do. Uh, definitely not cost wise. I mean, you know, <laughs> Japan and Singapore are two of the most expensive countries to, to live in uh, anywhere. um, but it is. I think it's. 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 If there's any expertise or, or advantage that that we have, I think it's just being able to sort of see both sides. Like you know, we get, we have a lot of exposure to what's happening the, um, just do our, our, our local presence there, but we also you know, um, I think in Korea especially, uh, tend to see stuff that's ideas that kind of sort of come out of North Asia, especially, um, you know, things like payments, um. You know, monetization of chat, all these things, which are actually kind of old old news now. These, they, they, you know, they they really came out of, uh, you know, I, I'd say the the, the countries sort of leading the way there would be China and, and 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 South Korea
0: for sure. Yeah, I mean, people look at Line. That's a lot of people think it's a Japanese company, and I guess to a certain extent it's managed out of Japan, but it comes out of Naver, right? And all the right. sort of innovation yeah. that took place on the in the chat applications, like you said, is coming out of, um. Korea and also coming out of China,
1: right? Yeah, and so so when you you start to see you know companies like Facebook introducing their payments platform and it's still in beta after all these years, you know you're just kind of like, geez, is it really that hard? You know, but then you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a different regulatory environments and you know the, the U.S. is a complicated place, um, lots of different states and you know lots of lots more regulation and, and legacy and stuff you have to deal with. Well,
0: so you bring up another really good point, which I think could be the subject of another a complete other podcast, and that is you know one of the differences is developing something in China and even in Southeast Asia is that the regulatory environment is not there is there's very little legacy regulations around this kind of stuff right mm-hmm. and because and because the the regulations haven 't been set yet, even for things like you know cryptocurrency, the governments will look at it and because there are no embedded interests that it sort of competes with. They're much more likely to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't do this today, but let's create the regulatory um, infrastructure around it so we can actually do this thing. Like, just because it's modern doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. Right, and that's why, and that's not the only reason why, but I know you know this. If you look at WeChat, Kakao, and even Line, right, they've built a whole bunch of functionality into there that, like, Messenger or WhatsApp or... You know whatever the chat applications are in the United States are can't build in, like you said, because of the regulatory environment, right? Like you go to, I, like I said, I was in Shanghai and you literally walk, someone walks into a coffee shop and it doesn't matter if they're 20 years old or 200 years old, they just pay for it with their phone. They don't even think about it. It's right, all right. on WeChat, right? Yep. So I just, like you said, you know, Facebook has, what, one point something billion people on their platform and yet you can't pay for stuff with Facebook, whereas with WeChat, you can pretty much run your entire life on WeChat
1: yeah and, and the interesting thing is is it 's not just private sector stuff it's like you can actually do you can you can interact with the governments on that platform too yeah. which um, is kind of mind blowing
0: It really is I mean, I think look in in a way right you've picked the right time in the right place and kind of the right industry to be able to see what's on the cutting edge of development i mean software really is there's no better place to see what 's happening. And how the rest of the world is developing right and and for my money i say this all the time like being in asia being in southeast asia for me in particular is where i see a whole bunch of this innovation taking place like there was a time where you know the development in china and even the development in southeast asia was more copycat than anything else and i think we're we're really at a point right now where that type of stuff is over you know we've caught up from a payments perspective you've caught up from an e-commerce perspective and the stuff that happens from now on is all going to be innovation and i think you're in the right spot at the right time to be able to take advantage of that, no?
1: Yeah, I hope so, and and I do think that the attitudes are sort of changing toward um, you know kind of product developments and and you know even even like businesses that are, that are being built out here in Asia Pac. Um, I, I do think even just as recently as a couple of years ago, we would really hear that sort of thing from you know sort of the, the the smug kind of startup set in in the Bay Area or in based in the U.S. Right you know, who really kind of think that that's the center of the world, the center of the universe, the, the digital universe anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's an increasing sort of understanding that um, uh, the world is a big place and, and um, you know, things, things are, are there, there are definitely lots of interesting things happening in this region.
0: Yeah, and look, I think, t- to be fair, I think that's a really good place to stop Right. The fact that people's perceptions are changing about what's going on, you know, not just in Southeast Asia, but in Asia in general. And I think you're right. There has been sort of a paradigm change in the way people perceive this in the old days. There wasn't a lot of innovation and now it's just like pure innovation, I think, from the get go.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, And, you know, it's it's not even just like it's not just companies in Asia that have have, have sort of created a a, a bad name for themselves by, uh, you know, kind of creating clones of, of Instagram or, or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, that this, this stuff is there. What's that company in Germany? That's basically, you know, kind of churned out hundreds of apps like that. Rocket uh, internet. Yeah. Yeah. Rocket internet. Yeah. Yeah. So the same sort of like, I think, um, uh, fingers could be pointed, pointed to, to basically the, any part of the world, really. It's not just Asia.
0: Right. I mean, so here's my view on this, right. And that is, the United States was built on the innovations of of Europe, right? And they copied whether it was steel production or steam engines or cars, which were invented, you know, in the UK. All of these things were basically mm-hmm. copied in the United States. It was a copycat economy until it wasn't anymore, right? And I think that that's just due to the stage of economic development of any particular ecosystem, country or not country, right? Yeah. And And – the catching up sort of process just happens a lot faster when it's software and technology related because it just that those types of developments just happen at a faster pace. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, what we've seen, right? So you can point fingers, as you said earlier, like, you know, with smugness and say, oh, they're just copying everything we're doing here. Sure they are. And once they're finished copying it, then they're going to start out-innovating you as well because you're still going to be, in the same way that the United States out-innovated um Europe because they were so busy saying they're just a bunch of dilettantes over there not, and they're not doing anything innovative or special. <laughs> when, while they were doing that, the rest of the country just started out innovating. I think the same thing's going to happen out here. It's going to be really great to watch sort of the competition and the innovation take place globally now that everybody has access to this type of technology.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's where it levels the playing field uh, because ultimately, like, really what matters the most, I think, is, is uh, you know, is, is, is this product actually useful to people you know, right. and uh, does it solve a problem? Um, I think I think there needs to be more of a focus on that, um, rather than sort of like you know innovation for like the 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 way that that Apple thinks of innovation. Um,
0: yeah, no, completely agree. You said it earlier, right? When when someone calls you and says, "Oh gosh, I have a problem," the first thing you think of is there's got to be a software solution for this, and frankly, there's got to be a business opportunity for it as well. Right? Yeah, that's kind of yeah. the way I look at things. So.
1: And that's, that's our general attitude toward, you know, kind of finding the right kind of partnership for us, which is, is like, you know, if, if the problem seems interesting and exciting and, and oftentimes the harder it is, you know, the less competitive it's going to be, um, the more exciting it is for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always said, like, doing doing the really hard things is for me is best because the competition there is is low and also people give up really quickly, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't mind. The harder it is and, like, you know, whether it's carrying a 25-pound suitcase upstairs or, or writing some really non-trivial software, it's just – there's nobody else wants to do it. So,
1: yeah. And it's, it's also that, that, that exercise you have to go through of, of deciding what you're not going to tackle, you know, which sometimes is the hardest part getting, getting everyone to sort of agree that like, you know what, this is, we're actually not going to address this. We're not going to touch this. Right.
0: Right. Well, look, I really want to say thank you for taking so much time today, someone. And, um, you know, just going through all of the things that you've been building and and all of your views on whether it's AR software development, living in Asia, traveling all over the world. I mean, I, I thought this was really fascinating for me. And hopefully you enjoyed yourself as well. Is there any is there any place that like people can find you or you want people to look for you to let them know before we before we finish?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can also reach me through um, our website, which is com, or you can find me on Twitter, that's uh, uh, Digital Wanker, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty easy to find.
0: Yeah, here's the great thing for me. One of the great things about doing a podcast is that because people have to connect to me over Skype, the, the Skype names that people come up with are really amazing, actually you know like oh, I said, yeah. digital is great like for a twitter handle or you know for something like that and you know my skype id is just michael waits it's just my name but there was a, there was someone i spoke to and i don't remember who it was and their skype name was come up with a good name for me please or something like that i can't remember what it was, it was so <laughs> random <laughs> you know that's one of those things that they never think is going to get exposed to anybody else but as soon as they yeah. start giving it out to people they're like maybe i should just change that to my name that's awesome I like it anyway look I really appreciate your time this is Michael Waits Asia Tech Podcast stories over the Sangwon Park the founder and the CEO favorite medium this was awesome
1: Michael thanks for having me thank you so much you've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com